Welcome to the New Note. I'm your host, Vaughn Nkosi, coming to you by way of the Institute for Local Innovations. Welcome to this latest podcast episode with my colleague, Alicia Butler. She and I had an amazing conversation that initially I thought would be maybe all of two hours. We ended up talking for over five and a half hours. So this podcast has been greatly edited down to its essence, but you'll still hear a compelling and relatable entrepreneurial backstory. But before I jump in, let me give you a short bio. Alicia is the founder and CEO of Equilibria, Inc., an operations management firm specializing in business infrastructure for fast-growing small businesses. Alicia has a Bachelor's of Science in Chemical Engineering from LSU, an MBA from Tulane University. She is also a certified Lean Six Sigma black belt and has authored business content generating over half a million combined views across various online platforms. Alicia also hosts the weekly podcast, Business Infrastructure, Curing Back Office Blues. She's also the author of the Amazon bestseller, Behind the Facade, How to Structure Company Operations for Sustainable Success. Committed to doing right things the right way always, Alicia's mantra is to leave it better than you found it. So with that, we're going to jump in and get started with Alicia. So let's jump in. Okay. Na- name, rank, and serial number. Where were you born? <laughs> the, <laughs> the whole nine. My name is Alicia Butler-Pierre, and I was born and raised in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. All right. To yeah. Sydney and Sheila Butler. And they are originally from Louisiana? Yes, they are. Several generations deep on both sides of my family, Louisiana. My mom is originally from Lake Charles, Louisiana, which is about two hours away from Houston. It's very close to the Texas border. And my dad grew up in a really small town in Louisiana called Greenwell Springs, which is right outside of Baton Rouge. And they met in college. They both went to Southern University. Okay. Which in Baton Rouge. You know, one of the interesting things that people discuss, especially people of color for the new note, is the migration from the South. It sounds mm. like of parents, parents, grandparents. Mm-hmm. So your parents never left Louisiana? They never left. My mom did go, she actually came here to Atlanta right after she finished college. She was in grad school at Emory. Oh, wow. Okay. And, but she didn't finish because my, my dad proposed to her. And I should back up. My dad actually did leave Louisiana. He was in the Air Force. Okay. So he was Actually, he lived in New York. He was, he was in New York for a while. He was also in Ohio, but he spent the bulk of his time in the Air Force in Morocco and the Philippines. My parents are six years apart. So my dad knew that a draft into the Vietnam War was inevitable. Hmm. So he was like, okay, rather than just being drafted, I'm going to just go ahead and (laughs) involuntarily sign up for this. So if I'm going to do it, I at least want to do something that I think would be of interest to me. He enlisted in the Air Force. So he did that. So by the time he completed his service, he received the GI Bill. 
yeah. where veterans, yes, so veterans are can go, go to school and have their education paid for. So he actually did not start college at that typical age of 17, 18, 19 years old. He was already in his mid-20s by the mm. time he started college. How did your parents meet if they were from two different towns? And Oh, yeah. this is a funny story. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I say it's funny only because those who are from, I, I, I hear this a lot from people who went to HBCUs, the class registration process and how it, it's <laughs> not fun, okay? Yeah. And so apparently the story goes, my mom was waiting in line trying to register for classes for the, the new semester and things just weren't going well. So she started crying. She's in this long line waiting. She's crying. She's frustrated. And here comes my dad. It was like, hey, girl, don't cry. <laughs> Big <laughs> Everything's going to be all right. Exactly. <laughs> Big Daddy's here and he's going to take care of everything. But that's, that's how they met. They, they were both standing in line waiting to register for their classes. Oh, wow. So give me the timeline. How was she at Emory and then Southern? What was, was grad school? Oh, so, oh, no, no, no. Sorry. Uh, so she went to Southern undergrad. They both were at right? Southern undergrad. And then gotcha. when she finished college at Southern, she received, I think it was some type of a fellowship for postgraduate studies at Emory University. Okay. Yes. Gotcha. So she went to Atlanta. I don't know how long she was here. It may have been like a year. Okay. And then she went back to Baton Rouge once she became engaged. You grew up by yourself. You have siblings. I am the oldest, the firstborn, and I have a younger sister. She's three years younger than I am. And we are actually, our birthdays are a, a day apart. It wasn't planned that way, but we're three years apart in age, so. Oh, that's right. Happy birthday again, belated. Thank you, thank you. In this upcoming section, Alicia and I had a chance to talk about her school days and those early influences. Let's talk about school. Uh, let's think about where you were doing in middle school, elementary school, those friends you had, that teacher, that coach, or what stands out for you? I was in private Catholic school from mm -hmm. kindergarten to eighth grade. The first school that I went to was called St. Anthony, and it was in a predominantly Vietnamese community. And I left St. Anthony's when I was in, after second grade, because there were rumors that the school was going to close down. And my parents put me and my sister into the school I would stay at from third grade to eighth grade, which was Sacred Heart. So I was around a lot of nuns. And it's funny because <laughs> whenever you think of the stereotypical nun, right, they're in a full habit and they have their ruler and they're very stern and mean. And, but, but here's what I tell people. There are two really critical things I think I learned from my time being in Catholic school. One is I have impeccable handwriting. And I never thought of that as a skill or something noteworthy until I became an adult and people would always people to this day actually always remark on my handwriting whenever I'm asked about it, they're like you know you must have gone to Catholic school and I'm like really that's a thing I didn't know but looking back on it there was always an emphasis on penmanship mm -hmm. from a very early age and the second thing was just this idea of being methodical 
having a routine. There was one nun in particular, Sister Patricia Wolf. Now she actually was kind of, I don't want to say mean, but she was extremely stern and everything was systematic with her. I remember in Louisiana, we have this custom, you know, for Mardi Gras. And I, I don't know if those who are listening, if they realize this, but carnival is a season for us. Just like we have maybe, let's say, the, the Thanksgiving, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa season. We have carnival season in Louisiana. Okay. And in um, many parts of the Caribbean and, and South America. And so part of celebrating carnival season is we have what we call a king cake. And it's a circular cake. And there's a, a very tiny plastic baby doll that's supposed to represent Jesus. Hence the name King Cake. He's the king. And the way it goes, the way the tradition goes, whoever gets the piece of cake that has that doll inside of it, you have to bring the next cake. And on it goes until carnival season ends. And carnival season ends with the Lenten season. So there's 40 days of Lent, which starts with Ash Wednesday all the way to Easter Sunday. But Sister Patricia had this very, it was even the way that we had to actually get up out of our desk and line up to go and get our piece of cake. Everything was just very methodical. It was very systematic, very process driven. And whenever people ask me, well, where did you, considering the work that I do now as a process person, you know, where did this come from? And I'm, I started to really reflect like, well, you know what? Considering that I went to Catholic school, my mom is a health inspector. My dad was in the Air Force. So everything was always about structure and organization and order. So it's almost no accident that my work ethic reflects those values. The classic, I survived Catholic school. I totally get it. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> a, a lot of principles there and I'm seeing themes in these conversations that I have with people who are entrepreneurs mm -hmm. and this Catholic school thing is coming up. Uh, hmm. It is coming up, which don't That's know. Yeah. Don't know what that means. Uh, but you mentioned your mom, health inspector, dad in the air force. You come mm -hmm. from order, discipline and process. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. So totally get it. Yeah. Let's, um, let's keep, let's keep going. Yeah. What it would. Okay. In this upcoming section, Alicia and I had an opportunity to talk about her early entrepreneurship as a child, beginning at age seven, and also including what I like to refer to as the lollipop hustle. What stands out to you age-wise as a, maybe a turning point or any entrepreneurs in the family, business people that you saw that had some influence on you? I've always been an independent thinker. And okay. as a kid, that's not, or was not uh, acceptable, I'll say. <laughs> so I never liked being told that I couldn't have something because they either couldn't afford it or just, no, I don't want to spend my money on that for you. Okay. So I was always of the mindset, Vaughn, since I was a very, very young child, if I want it, I'm going to have to work for it and get it myself. My very first gig, my very first entrepreneurial venture was at the daycare center. My sister and I would go there after school. And I remember begging them, can I please do anything to make some money? Please, I'm sure there's something I could do to help you. And so I would get paid $7 
to mm. do like really minor things, sweep the driveway, chores that a seven-year-old could reasonably do. But sure. that's what I would do. And my dad started a bank account for me. He worked at Exxon at the plant. That's, that's what you do, right? You get a good paying job, right? That's reliable. Go to a plant. So that's what he was doing. And he started an Exxon bank account for me at the age of seven. And I still have that bank account. Really? I do. Wow. I do. Trying to hustle and make my own money. And I always found a way to hustle something like kids love candy, right? So yep. I would, if my mother and I went to the Dollar General store, I would buy the big can, uh, big bags of blow pops or Skittles or whatever. And I would just sell them individually. Like, oh, <laughs> you want this blow pop? Give me a quarter. That was how I would make money. And that was how I would get the things that I really wanted. Hold on. Let's, mm -hmm. let's, let's back up a minute. All right. Now I'm digging. I'm digging the story. I, I love it. I told you in my email. Tell me some stories. So this is great. What did your so did you tell your mom? Okay, I'm gonna buy this bag. That's who knows five dollars or whatever it was. But I'm gonna make twenty. What did mom and dad say when they were like, oh okay? I don't think it was ever taken. It was never taken seriously until there was a bigger ticket item that I may have really wanted, and they're like, "No, I, you know, I can't afford it," or "No, you, no, you can't have that." I'm like, "Well, I have my own money. Can you, can you take me to the store now so I can get this pair of Jabot jeans, for example? That was really popular when I was up and coming. Jabot jeans." like no I don't, I'm not getting that for you and so when it got to a point where I was I had saved up enough money I could literally pay for it myself that wasn't always appreciated <laughs> okay because again I was I was always very independent I was always self-sufficient yeah so if you tell me no I can't do something no you can't have it I was going to figure out a way that I could make that happen that's just, I, I'm just wired that way. You might be asking yourself, hey, where did you get this entrepreneurial spirit from? In this next section, I think you'll find out. It's a bit of a cat's in the cradle moment. If you're not familiar with the song, Google it. Did your mom or dad say, you know, you're just like your fill in the blank. I am just like my daddy. Okay. I have been told, I, we are twins separated by 30 years <laughs> but we are we are so much alike we look alike we think the same way you cannot tell us that we can't do something because we're going to find a way to make it happen my dad so i told you he was in the air force yeah so once he went to college i think his very first job was teaching math in middle school but he was also an electrician a certified electrician at one point he was also a certified carpenter he then started working at Exxon he worked at Exxon for 29 years in security but all throughout that time he was at Exxon he always had a side thing going I don't know if you remember these commercials from I think back in the early 80s it was these Time magazine commercials where they would produce these how-to books where you could literally teach yourself how to become a plumber, how to become an electrician, how to become a gardener, so forth and so on. He bought that set of books and he literally taught himself how to do plumbing, how to do carpentry work, electrical work, you name it. And he started buying these dilapidated homes and he would renovate them on his own and then flip them and sell them. 
So that was the model that I had growing up. My dad even did taxes. <laughs> I can remember people coming over to the house every year during tax season, he would do their taxes. And he stopped when things started becoming more electronic. But he's always had something going, always, even to this very day. He has like a thousand and one different things going. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely get that. Did you think at that time, watching your father pick up the phone, make those phone calls, that there was something you wanted to emulate? It was just, you, when you're that young, you just think you're like a sponge. So you're just absorbing everything around you. But it's not until you become older and you start to reflect back on your younger years that you realize when and where certain seeds were being planted. So to me, it was just, it was natural. Yeah, that's what you do. You want to learn how to do something? Okay, you, you find some books, you do your research, you practice, and then you keep doing it until you get really good at it. And then, yeah, you can make some money. So it was just, that's what I saw. Well, it's funny, my sister and I, once we became, I guess, old enough, we would, we would go and do work with him. My sister and I can sand a floor, we can put up drywall, we can paint, we can pressure wash the house. He taught us how to be self-sufficient. So dad is doing the nine to five, plus he's got the side hustles. Mm-hmm. And what was mom doing during this time and her interaction with dad and these, you know, uh, weekend projects, evening and weekend projects, uh, and I guess having you tag along with them when, you, when possible? My mom, so growing up, she was definitely the parent who, she was the one to go to the PTA meetings. She was the one to have the one-on-one -on -one meetings with the teachers. She was the one fighting, trying to figure out, well, why didn't my child get accepted into the such and such club or the such and such program? That's what she was, she did a lot of, making sure we had everything we needed for school and for our education. So you, you're helping dad uh, renovate the houses and he's turning them over, assume, assuming for a profit. Fast forward to high school. Okay. I, like you, I had had enough of Catholic school. <laughs> I didn't want to wear a uniform anymore. And the Catholic high schools, there were only two. One was an all-girls school and one was an all-boys school. And I was like, I do not want to go to an all-girls school. Absolutely not. So I asked my mother if I could go to one of the magnet high schools. Can I back and up that, for a minute? Okay, yes. So you're the second person about not going to an all-girls school. <laughs> so I'd love for you to, ex to give us a little the why. Okay, for me, I'm going to give you two whys based on where I am in my life now and where I was in my life back then. First of all, I knew I wanted and needed more diversity in my life because unlike your experience, my Catholic school experience was predominantly white. In fact, when I graduated from, and we actually had an eighth grade graduation, when I graduated from eighth grade, I think there were five of us, five black students in the eighth grade graduating class. There were about five of us as well. Okay. Because this so, was, uh, you're switching over in New Jersey, 
that's when it was like, wait a minute, we are like minority. I mean, yeah, minorities. Okay. That was my rude awakening. So yeah, I totally get it. So I, I said, okay, if I, not only will I potentially be going to an all girls school, but it's going to be predominantly white and girls. So I'm like, okay, that's really not having a lot of diversity. So for me, it was, I'm, I want to be around more people who look like me. I want to be, I don't want to be around all girls. I, d I want to be in an environment where there are, there's a variety. So okay. now, if you were to ask me that, <laughs> um, not much has changed. It's, I'm all about balance, Vaughn. And I didn't realize that about myself until years later. Maybe when we get to that phase of my life, we can explore that a little bit more. But I've had different people help me realize that I've always been attracted to the idea of balance. Even today, the name of my company is Equilibria. Equilibria is the plural form of equilibrium, which is balance. Okay, and within the word equilibria is the word Libra. For those who are familiar with the zodiac, Libra is represented by the scales. So again, it's going back to balance. So I was always attracted to this idea of balance and diversity without really even knowing how to coin that phrase, being in the seventh and eighth grade, trying to go into high school. Mm -hmm. Okay, a lot of stuff in there. You are listening to The New Note. This is where we discuss the life influences that have shaped transformational leaders, how they have walked in the world, and the paths they have taken that have brought them to where they are today and may lead them tomorrow. Back to your high school years. You've, you've switched over. Okay, no more Catholic school. Where did you end mm -hmm. up? I ended up at a magnet high school called Scotlandville Magnet High School. I went to school with some very bright people. In fact, I actually went to high school with Stormy Daniels. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> I found that out a few months ago. She would have been a freshman, I think, when I was a senior. Okay. So I'm, I'm, a little, I'm about, I guess, what, three three years older than she is. But my point is, Scotlandville was a social experiment that went well, and it wasn't supposed to. Hmm. Scotlandville Magnet originated as just a regular high school in an area of Baton Rouge known as Scotlandville, which is right, literally right down the street from Southern University. So it's in a predominantly African-American area. And this principal, Freddie Williams, had this idea to radically transform the school. He had this idea of converting it into a magnet high school where there would not be football or basketball. And he received, I don't know all of the details of how this came into being, but he started to attract educators from around the country to come to Baton Rouge, Louisiana for this brand new magnet high school or the school that was being transformed into a magnet high school. And I believe it became a magnet high school sometime in the 80s, I believe. The magnet program was no more by, I think, like the year 99 or maybe even 2000. But I was taught by teachers, for the most part, who I really believed 
genuinely cared about me. The high school, in order to attract white students to the school, they had to build an exit ramp off of the interstate so that they would not have to drive through <laughs> the, these bad areas in order to get to the high school. So they, they went through a lot just to, to get this school to become what it, what it was when it was a magnet program. So my graduating class was almost 50-50. It was 49% black or African-American, I believe, and 51% white. Okay. But here's the amazing thing because we were in such a diverse environment, it gave us exposure to each other. So gone were the stereotypes that, well, they're dumb and they're here for because of some type of affirmative action benefit or clause. No, we're here because we had to take tests just like you did in order to get into this school in the first place. In order to stay here until our senior year, we had to maintain, I think it was a 2.5 GPA, or you were kicked out. And so now we have doctors, engineers, lawyers, entrepreneurs. One of my classmates is an anesthesiologist. I mean, we, we've, we've done so well. In the following section, Alicia talks about how she has made a conscious effort as a young person to sharpen her personal brand from the way she speaks to other aspects of how she carries herself. I've worked really hard on my diction. Really? And yes, because I remember when I was living in New Orleans, I remember watching the five o'clock news. Okay. And it was like something just hit me one day and I was like, I don't sound like that when I talk. And I started making an effort to almost emulate the way people spoke, the way the journalists were speaking on the news. Again, very neutral, you know, no heavy accents one way or the other, just, just very neutral. And I started practicing that. My accent used to be pretty thick. Really? Mm -hmm. Okay. So why did you do this? When you start to... How old were you when you picked up on this? When it hit you? In my early, in my early 20s. Oh, really? That and, late? Mm -hmm. Okay. In my, in my early 20s, because again, remember, I wasn't around people who weren't from Louisiana. It wasn't like I was in a transient place like a New York City or a Washington, D.C., where you may come into contact on a regular basis with people who aren't from the area. Louisiana is very insulated in that way. So even within the state, there are, there are still variations in the accents. But getting back to your question, coming to this realization, when you start looking at people, because at this point I was, I was technically an adult, I was on, living on my own, and when you start thinking about what direction you want your career to go in, I would start to look at people that I admired and what they were doing and how they carried themselves. How do they dress? How do they speak? What types of hairstyles do they have? And you'll start to notice there's a, a, a rather conservative look and feel across the board, whether you're talking about, even in entertainment, there's certain people who reach certain levels and they look a certain way. They speak a certain way. And I started to really look at that. 
and I just I started practicing. I know that sounds probably really crazy, but but it was I'm I'm constantly self-reflecting. What can I do to be better? How can I improve? I know how to accept criticism and I don't take it personally. Now, there are some times when people are just being flat out mean and and rude and disrespectful, but for the most part, if I I can take a punch. Let, let's put it like that. I can take a punch and get up the next day and go right back at it. And I look at certain people and how easily their feelings are hurt or how easily, how quickly they can go from zero to a hundred in terms of their anger, in terms of them feeling disrespected. And I look at them and I'm like, you would not have survived the way I grew up where I was constantly being told certain things about my looks, certain things about just I mean, anything about me, you name it, but it didn't break me. It was, well, okay, some things, if you can fix it, you fix it. And then for other things, it's just who you are and move on, live with it. At this point, we are taking a little break and giving a shout out to our partners over at liquidstudios360.com for their significant upgrade to the MyReality smartphone platform. That is MyReality, spelled M I. R-I-A-L-I-T-I. Listeners interested in impacting justice, equity, including addressing online bullying and trolling, economics, public health, environmental impacts, improving communities and cities, and almost anything else that can be imagined, all from your pocket, in a closed, secure network of people only you invite in, can find out more about the platform by visiting the MyReality website at MyReality.com. Again, that's M-I-R-I-A-L-I-T-I.com. Download the latest version of the platform to your smartphone via links on the website or go directly to the App Store for iOS and Google Play for Android. The platform will be presented at the 2019 Upswell Summit in Chicago in November as a science and technology demonstration in the public square. If you're in Chicago attending the summit, be sure to check it out. Want to be considered for possible participation in the digital presentation in some form or fashion? Drop us an email at info at ili360.org. This is my reality. What's yours? Now you jumped into your 20s about this uh, replicating um, or emulating a TV personality years. in news. Yes. Yeah, you skipped a whole lot of college. Okay. Okay. And, there's, yeah. yeah, there's a lot to say yeah. about high school and college. Yeah, so let's back up. Let's, let's jump Okay. Up. Alicia and I jumped back to significant high school years and the influence a couple of teachers particularly her Spanish teacher and her chemistry teacher had on her future? Yes, I really, really, really enjoyed high school. My high school was, because it was pre a pre-college 
curriculum, it was almost like being in college. There were groups of kids who would fashion themselves into things similar to sororities and fraternities. So by the time I actually got to college, I was like, oh yeah, we used to do that when I was in 10th grade. That's old. <laughs> but I really enjoyed high school. I actually was thinking just earlier this morning, I, I just returned from Cuba. And my Spanish teacher in high school was Cuban. And I took Spanish all four years and I was fluent. But again, this kind of goes back to me not being exposed to a lot of people of different, let's say in this case, different cultures and ethnicities. So I wasn't around a lot of Spanish speaking people. But when I was 16 years old, I made my first trip out of the country and that was to Mexico City. And I was able to help us, my family, navigate, get around. I was, I was, I could speak Spanish very fluently. And now, Vaughn, fast forward, I go to Cuba and I'm speaking Spanglish. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's sad. Yeah. sad. <laughs> and I, I thought about it this morning. I said, Mrs. Herrera would be so disappointed in me. But it's, it's so true. If you don't use it, you lose it. My Spanish teacher left quite the impression on me because she had such a unique way of teaching us. She was a lot of fun and she was very into camcorders. So she was always telling us that the best way to learn another language was to do, we would, she would let us do these skits and we would, we could do like a telenovela or we could do a commercial. She would just let our imaginations run wild, but we had, as long as we did everything in Spanish and she was right. That's what helped us learn. And the other teacher that definitely had a very profound effect and impact on me was my teacher who was actually, so this goes to show you the diversity of the teachers. My chemistry teacher was from the Ukraine, Mrs. Kablis. And she is the person that I credit with introducing me to what I would eventually major in, which was chemical engineering. Ironically, my high school, the magnet program, it was an engineering school, but I was not interested in engineering. I wanted to be a journalist. And it wasn't until 11th grade when I took my first chemistry class, a good teacher will, will see something in a student and will try to cultivate and bring out that skill in that student if they see that something is there. So she saw something in me that I didn't even know existed. In my high school, because it was a magnet high school, we had to take four years of a science. So instead of taking physics, I took an advanced chemistry class and I just excelled. Chemistry was so easy to me. And when it came time to start filling out applications for college, I'll never forget it. She came up to me one day and was like, what are you thinking of majoring in? And I said, journalism. She was like, journalism? <laughs> she was like, but you're so good at chemistry. And so I changed my major to chemistry. And then she said, well, you want to make money, don't you? And I said, well, yes, of course. And she said, so here's the thing. If you graduate in chemistry, you would almost have to get to the PhD level before you start making some really good money. Whereas if you became a chemical engineer, you'll start making money right out the gate. So I literally followed the money, Vaughn. And I wish there was more to tell you, more to this story, but it, it really was as simple as that. I had a teacher who was like, hey, you're really good in chemistry. I thought, okay, well, instead of becoming a journalist, I'll become a chemist. And she was like, well, you know, 
chemical engineers make even more money. Okay, well, you know what? Chemical engineering it is. <laughs> <And so laughs> that was how I selected what would become my future career. But she, again, she saw something in me because although I was good at it, I still didn't really have an interest. And I realize now looking back on it, the reason I didn't have an interest Vaughn, was because I didn't know any chemist. Mm. I hadn't been exposed to that. You are listening to The New Note. The New Note is where we discuss how the future isn't what it used to be. What do you mean get a degree in chemistry? What on earth would I even do with that? Am I gonna be like a mad scientist in a laboratory? But that's just it. When you're not exposed, when you don't have people in your immediate circle, when you don't have people in your neighborhood, your church, your school, wherever you are as a kid that age, when you don't have exposure to that, you don't even know that it's a possibility because you don't even know it exists. Because yeah. think about it. The, image, the images that we see, especially as African-Americans, who are the successful people? They're all in some form of entertainment. Nine times, nine, 9.99, you know, out of 10 times, they are in some form of entertainment. So in our minds, oh, well, I need to become the pro athlete. I need to become a singer. I need to be a rapper. I need to do... Even if I can't sing or I can't rap or I can't write music, I need to be affiliated with the music industry in some way, shape, form, or fashion. Because that's all we are given heavy exposure to. There was a lesson in there from the Spanish to this reality around a major in chemical engineering and mm -hmm. exposure, who you see, who you yes. talk to. It sounds to me like you had, <laughs> your hustle came way before high school. You were selling lollipops one at a time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. But the influence of these teachers, from whether it's the nun to Spanish teacher and how she taught to the chemistry teacher and what they all saw. Yes. In the next section, Alicia and I had an opportunity to talk about the role gender plays as well as what she called masculine and feminine energy. She mentioned three women. Did you feel something in the gender space during your high school years? Advantage, disadvantage, people looking out for you um, because you were female? No, honestly, no. Okay. Those, I didn't feel that. Now, I can tell you that I, I also loved my trigonometry teacher, Mr. Scardina. He was awesome. And I'm, I'm gonna say something that may get me in trouble. Let me figure out how I can say this without, I wanna make sure the way I say it is the way I intend for it to be heard, if yes. that makes sense. Sure. What I learned, especially with my math teachers. So in high school, I had two male math teachers and two female math teachers and of all of my math classes, I got more out of my classes that were taught by my male teachers. And here's, I think I have a reason why. My husband used to always tell me how much he hated math and he was like, I'm bad at math, I don't like it. So one day he, he said that and I was like, well, let's, let's unpack that, okay? <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's unpack that. 
And I said, well, who taught you? And he started naming all these female teachers. And I said, well, you know what? When I was in ninth grade, my teacher was male. 10th and 11th grade, they were female. In 12th grade, my teacher was male. And I said, I can, I'm in a position to easily compare and contrast. Here's one thing I know for sure, and this goes back to that ancient Chinese symbol, the yin-yang. Mathematics is pure logic. It is not emotional. For people who tend to be more emotionally inclined, if you add emotion to a subject like math, it can turn some people off. Mathematics doesn't care, Vaughn, if you're happy, sad, tired, disgusted, ecstatic, whatever. One plus one is always going to equal two, period. Pure logic, doesn't care about emotion. And so when I talk about this yin yang, please don't, I don't want listeners to think that I'm saying male versus female. I'm saying masculine energy versus feminine energy because I believe we all kind of carry a little bit of both, to be honest with you. Oh, absolutely. I know there are a lot of times when, even though, you know, anatomically I am a woman, <laughs> okay, but I can have very, there are certain characteristics about me that some people would say, oh, God, you're like a type A male. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, or they, when they hear, that my career started off as an engineer. Really? Really? And so it conjures up all of these ideas for certain people. So I'm, I picked up on quite a bit of, uh, hopefully the listeners will too, from the high school influences and the way you are. Mm-hmm. Practical life. I mean, that's the, the thread that's coming through is definitely practical uh, and not not pejoratively, but linear thinking, or at least process-wise, mm-hmm. lateral thinking. But there's a process even to the lateral thinking that drives you. The multilingual piece was huge. I think that's, hopefully you get that back because that's a big deal. In this next section, Alicia shares with us her experiences during her college years. Let's go to college. You decided to go into chemical engineering. What was the decision-making point for what school? Again, a theme you're going to notice with me is money. Who's going to give me the most money? (laughs) And I was accepted into Georgia Tech. I was accepted into a few schools out of state, but I was going to have to pay out-of-state fees every time. And I decided to go to LSU because I had a full scholarship and would not have to, you know, because I was in in state, there was no such thing as having to pay the out-of-state fees. It boiled down to, I don't want to come out of school with a huge student loan. And if I can go free, completely free, that's what I'm going to do. So you go to LSU. This is a Mm four-year program. Four-year program, I I took five years to complete the program because instead of doing a traditional summer internship, I actually did a co-op. So I was alternating semesters. So I worked a fall semester and then would go to school in the spring, worked again that summer, went to school in the fall, and then completed the co-op like another spring semester. Got you. Okay. What was the co-op? I worked at a company called SciTech Industries. They made 
acrylonitrile, and I know you're probably like, what on earth is that? It is the ingredient that goes into many different forms of glass. Okay. So for example, acrylonitrile goes into the making of the windshield in a car, mm -hmm. that, that glass. So things like that. They also made ammonia and a couple of other chemicals. And so that's where I was. And I knew as a result of that experience, I hated chemical engineering. <laughs> I didn't want to do it. It was, I remember walking through the plant one day. And where was this plant? This was in Wagaman, Louisiana. So it is along the river road across the river, you could say from New Orleans. So they call that the West Bank because it's on the west side of the river. And it's, I mean, it's lined up with just nothing but chemical plant or oil refinery, one after the other. In fact, the, the area, you know, that leading on up into Texas is known as Cancer Alley because it's nothing but chemical plants and oil refineries. And... This is the New Note Podcast, and you've been listening to my conversation with Alicia Pierre Butler. She is about to share with us how she got a little dose of reality of corporate downsizing culture during college. The thing that really opened my eyes more than anything, they hired a new plant manager. I think this was my last co-op term. They hired a new plant manager. His sole purpose was to decrease the workforce by 25%. So you started seeing people who had been there 20, 25, 30, 35 years being let go. And it was awful. Mm -hmm. People crying. You know, these are people who are old enough to be your parents, sometimes even your grandparents. And they're just crying. And I thought to myself, I don't want this to be my story. Mm. where you give up or, or you dedicate most of your life to a company. And they're just, I mean, in the, the, with the snap of a finger, it's over. Put you on an ice float. Yeah. And, and, and you know, you're lucky if you get <laughs> at Monsanto. So my first job out of college, they would, <laughs> they would give people, you got to choose what type of bluebell ice cream you wanted and you got a cake. I think it was 20 years of service. Whereas at Exxon, where my dad worked, they were like, oh, what type of watch do you want? Gold, 14 karat, 18 karat, gold-plated watch. You know, like, really, Monsanto? <laughs> <laughs> A person is given 20 years of their life and you're asking them what kind of cake and ice cream they want? Surely you can do a little bit better than that. But um, yeah, so that's what I saw in college. And I decided to pursue a minor in technical sales because I wanted, I just had this intuitive thought that I needed to know more about the business side of things. And the engineering curriculum did not include business. Business was actually frowned upon, but I made the effort. I took the initiative to pursue that minor. And that's how I started getting introduced to some of these industrial engineering classes, classes about economics, things about communication, you know, all the stuff that a stereotypical engineer would say is soft. Right, sure. But I have to tell you, it, it has helped me tremendously in my career. How did the passion or initial desire around journalism, where did it go? 
I really liked to write. I was very good in my English classes. That's what I loved. I loved reading. I loved literature. And then once I was in college, all of that went away. My world went from being very colorful and illustrated to black and white. Wow. That's heavy. Yeah, very heavy. And if you were to see my textbooks from back then, I would color, I would highlight all in different colors because I'm trying to add, col literally add color and context to what I was reading because it was so dense and there weren't pictures anymore. <laughs> there weren't <laughs> illustrations. And I was trying, you know, you're trying to wrap your head around some of the concepts and for me, I learn best through, I definitely learn through pictures. I'm definitely the type of person who learns by doing. And I have to see how the dots are connected. And this is a criticism that I have actually of just of our educational system across the board in the U.S. We don't, we tend to teach subjects in silos and we don't show the interconnectedness in the subjects that students are being taught. Yes. So for example, when you were learning architecture, okay, what was going on politically during the, I don't know, whatever period, the neoclassical period or the Renaissance period in Italy, right? right? There's a direct link between what was going on politically versus historically, which impacted the way mathematicians did things, which impacted the way the architects designed buildings, which impacted the way the artists and the painters did their work. So all of this was interconnected, but that's not how we're taught. And so this is why people say things, and myself included, I hate history. I hated history growing really? up. Now um, I love it. I, I love it, but it was because of the way it was. I was taught history. Just like we were talking about math, I did not like the way history was presented to me. It was yeah. boring. <laughs> Learning the presidents in order. Okay, this is, how boring is that? <laughs> but if you were to tell me interesting facts and tidbits about these presidents, I guarantee you I would have I remembered it. And it would have been so much more interesting. So by the time I graduated, I had two minors. I had a minor in technical sales, as well as chemistry. In that five-year period, you, I'm sure you were thinking about the future. What am I going to do when I get out of this place? What am mm -hmm. I, am I going to work? Am I going to do, you've got your history with your personal seven-year-old hustle. You got your, <laughs> <laughs> the lollipop hustle. You've got, You've got your dad, you know, renovating <laughs> houses. There was something going on in those five years. It wasn't all academic. You were doing your co-op. Oh, no, no. Were you doing anything entrepreneurial in those five years? Well, I could have and I didn't. Here's where penmanship comes back into play. I always kept my notes from every class. There was a girl that I befriended who was a year behind me. She was like, can I, can I take a look at your notes? And then she was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to make a copy of this. And she started distributing copies of my notes from classes that I had already taken to her classmates. <laughs> and I was like, was she I should have made, she wasn't selling them. <laughs> But she told me, she was like, you, you could have, after the fact, she was like, you could have sold that probably. I could have. But I was so, by the time my junior year kicked in, oh, oh 
It was nonstop studying, being in the labs. It was intense. It was definitely intense. And I did manage to, and I'm about to tell you something that I rarely talk about. I did manage to pledge a sorority. That was interesting. <laughs> and yeah, for the most part, the last three years were just really brutal. And I call it boot camp. Okay. Because I would say the last three years of college really toughened me. Okay. And prepared me for what was to come as an adult. In this next section, Alicia talks about the impact of professors testing her resolve, which she credits in part to her toughness. These professors were no joke. I think I only had one professor who was like in his 30s, but for the most part, the rest of them were in their 60s on up. They were tenured, couldn't touch them, and they would talk to you any kind of way. And their, their goal was to break you. Wow. Yeah, they wanted to see how tough are you? Are you ready for this? A story I often tell, I was taking a heat and mass transfer class. Actually, there's two stories from this class. One of them I talk about in my book. The story I'm going to share right now, we would have these homework assignments. And even though I don't think homework was graded in this particular class, but me trying to take initiative, I was trying to work through some problems that were at the end of a particular chapter. And I just kept getting stuck on this one particular problem. I went to this professor's office during his office hours. And when I walked in, I'll never forget this. He gave me such a scornful look. Like, why are you even here? Wow. Why are you wasting my time? He didn't say anything to me to acknowledge my presence, but I told him why I was there and that I was trying earnestly to think through this problem. I just couldn't figure it out. Can you please tell me where I'm going wrong? He told me, and I quote, to get the F out of his office. Really? Yes. Yes. And everyone has the same reaction when I tell this story. Yes, that's what he told me. This is your host, Vaughn Nkosi, and you've been listening to The New Note. If you like what you've heard, please follow us on iTunes and please remember to rate the show. You can also find us on social media. Search for us under New Note or Next New Note, depending on your social media platform. When you see the jazzy saxophone watercolor logo, that's us. And I gathered up my things, walked out of the office, and I remember walking across the campus to get to my dorm room, and the tears just started streaming down my face. And it wasn't because I was hurt. I was angry. Have you ever heard of someone say, I was so angry, I just started crying? Yeah. That's what it was for me. I, it was pure anger like I can't believe this so me being the person that I am I had some time to think through it that night the very next day I went back to his office hmm. I must have a glutton for punishment right yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I went back to his office and he this time his look wasn't it wasn't scorn as much as it was oh Okay, she's back for more. Okay, oh. <laughs> <laughs> round two. <laughs> okay. it, it, was, it was a look less of the initial look he had of scorn and contempt, but this time this look was more of, oh, she's back? Like a look of shock almost. And I told him, and I knew I was taking a risk, but I said, you know, the, the way I see it, 
we need each other. I need you because you have the knowledge that I'm trying to gain. You need me because if it were not for your students, you wouldn't have a job. My tuition helps pay your salary. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and this slow smirk started to spread across his face. And he said, sit down. I'm going to show you how to work this problem. So not only did he show me how to work problem, but by the time our next exam came up, he put that exact same problem on the exam. Before I graduated, we had to have exit interviews. Hmm? And based on your last name, that determined what professor would conduct your exit interview. And this professor by the name of Dr. Wetzel conducted my exit interview. And he said, you know, we were talking about you the other day. I was like, okay. And he said, I have no idea what you're going to do with your life, but I know one thing for sure. You're going to make it, whatever you do. And I said, okay. So he almost... It was very prophetic in many because in a way he was saying, I know you're not going to be an engineer for very long. I know you're not going to work as a traditional, I should say, engineer for very long. But no matter what you end up doing, I know you're going to make it. How did she survive an academic and professional environment not traditionally known for diversity? Check out how she turned perceived disadvantages to her advantage. And a lot of times people ask me, How did you survive being in a predominantly male, white male classroom environment? And I said, you know what? You may see as a liability or a detriment, I always turned into an asset. I always knew my professors knew me. I could be in a class literally of 500 people. They're going to know this chocolate girl. They're going to know me, right? They, They know me. So use it to your advantage. They already know you. Yeah. Alicia and I conversed about the rigors of college and the purpose behind process thinking and problem solving in preparation for addressing real world challenges and unscheduled disasters. Here's what she had to say. My experience in engineering was it's not so much about getting the right answer. They want to know your logic and reasoning in getting to the answer that you got to. Right. So that's why sometimes when I tell people, well, when we had a test, it was like two problems. What? Two problems? Yeah, they're not interested in, it's definitely not multiple choice. Mm-hmm. They want to see how you actually work out a problem. They're trying to understand your logic. Yes. And so in understanding how you were processing things in order to derive at your final answer, that's how they can tell you where you went wrong. Yes. But if you just produce a final answer, they well, they have no idea what you were thinking to get to that answer. So being in college, I call it boot camp because there were several situations where the goal was to break you down mm-hmm. and to see, are you, are you going to pull yourself back up? Because here's the thing, when you are in a plant environment and something will go wrong, something might explode, something might burn up when it's not supposed to, something will go wrong. Are you going to buckle under the pressure? And I'll tell you something, Vaughn, as painful as those experiences were, Mm -hmm. it has made me one tough cookie. 
<laughs> other people are like oh my god I can't do it anymore I can't go on I'm like oh no we haven't mm -mm. my mother used to always tell us think until it hurts have you really tried everything you can think of if you haven't you need to keep going try something else don't walk away until it's fixed when you're in a plant you cannot walk away from a problem until it is fixed right you're there to manufacture something and you better damn well figure it out you are listening to the new note this is where we discuss how transformational professionals started in life and how their career may or may not be where they originally envisioned it and may not be the same in the future you're not allowed to you're literally not allowed to leave so you could be there days no sleep trying to figure out a problem that has never left me even now my husband will look at me like you're still up you're still working on this because i'm like i can't walk away from it until i know i've resolved it until yeah. i know i've fixed it yep. i can't let it go Yep. Whereas a lot of other people are like, you know what, I'm, I, I'm tired. I have to go to bed or <laughs> let me hire somebody else to figure this out for me. I, I can't. I can't. They don't have the stamina. At this point, we are taking a little break and giving a shout out to our partners over at liquidstudios360.com for their significant upgrade to the MyReality smartphone platform. That is MyReality spelled M-I-R-I-A-L. I T I listeners interested in impacting justice, equity, including addressing online bullying and trolling, economics, public health, environmental impacts, improving communities and cities and almost anything else that can be imagined all from your pocket in a closed, secure network of people only you invite in can find out more about the platform by visiting the My Reality website at MyReality.com. Again, that's M-I-R-I-A-L-I-T-I dot com. Download the latest version of the platform to your smartphone via links on the website or go directly to the App Store for iOS and Google Play for Android. The platform will be presented at the 2019 Upswell Summit in Chicago in November as a science and technology demonstration in the public square. If you're in Chicago attending the summit, be sure to check it out. Want to be considered for possible participation in the digital presentation in some form or fashion? Drop us an email at info at ili360.org. This is my reality. What's yours? So let me ask the question. Can you dream of things that you've never seen before? In this next section, as Alicia, she reflects on the importance of networking and exposure to what is possible versus the confines of one's environment. You finish up undergrad. Did you have a job or something lined up on your way out the door or what happened post LSU? I did have a job lined up. In hindsight, I should have made more of an effort to reach out to companies outside of Louisiana. So most of the companies that recruited at my school were fairly local to the area if or the state. So I didn't have an appreciation for 
the fact that I could apply my chemical engineering skills on Wall Street. I didn't have an appreciation for the fact that I could have applied my chemical engineering skills to the pharmaceutical industry, the food industry, the beverage industry. Mm. Again, it goes back to that exposure. Yes. That wasn't what we were exposed to. We were exposed to chemical plants and oil refineries. Wow. That's what I was exposed to. And so, yes, I did have a job lined up at Monsanto. That was my first job out of college. When you are in a company that large and you're so young in your career, I just knew that I had this job. I was making great money and I was living in a city known for partying and, and having a good time. And I was in a silo. I was isolated from a lot of things and I started to slowly see things, stories about this, my employer. Hmm. And I could not easily and readily identify with it because it wasn't a part of what I was specifically working on. But now it, it took me having to leave the company to look back being on the outside, looking back in to say, wow, that's why this happened and this person had this reaction and this, they sold this part of the business and then they merged, like everything became very clear. But while I was there, I couldn't see it. I just couldn't see it. Yeah. So even as Alicia was living in a corporate bubble, the hustle still continued. And in this upcoming section, we discuss her real estate play, living small, international travel and work, all while things were coming to a head for her at Monsanto. So any, any other, you didn't have the time, any entrepreneurial hustles? Right out of college. Oh no, oh no, I was oh the hustle the hustle resumed by that point, Vaughn. <laughs> the hustle did resume. Of course the hustle resumed. Come on now. And what were you and so what were you stirring up? I just always I, I don't know, it could be something as simple as can you help me organize this? I was always very good at organizing, very good mm -hmm. at keeping things clean and organized. So okay. I, I might charge somebody to do that. Or if someone asks, it, it was usually something that involved manual labor of some sort, hmm. like helping to clean something, helping to organize something. And eventually I bought my first home mm -hmm. where I rented out, uh, it was a shotgun and the, the way the house had been renovated, the front of the house was separate from the back. I lived in the back part of the house. I rented out the front. Okay. So I became, I officially became a landlady. And you were and how old? 23 or 24 years old. Okay. Yes. Was that and your first, that was your first property that you owned? That was my first property. And I kept that rental income in a separate account and never touched it. Hmm. Never touched it. And the, I and lived, the logic and the rationale behind that was? Was to build up a reserve so that I could buy my next property. Okay. Mm -hmm. And if I ever needed to make repairs for any reason, I always knew I had that pool of money that I could go into. I should also point out, I, I adjusted my lifestyle to where I only lived off of one paycheck per month. So I was paid twice a month, every two weeks. 
and I only lived off of one check a month. So again, I was saving that other check. Plus that's the rental how I was, income. Plus the rental income. So I, that's how I was able to finance my international traveling. <laughs> so some people spend money. Well, you know, it's interesting sure. to, to see what people spend money on. Some people, mm -hmm. like some, some women I know, they spend a lot of money on personal upkeep personal grooming, you know, mm -hmm. hair and nails and makeup and all that kind of stuff. That was, I was never that person. Mm -hmm. My money would go towards my international traveling. So let's real quick, I'm not sure when it happened in your timeline, uh, Egypt and Canada, those work experiences were mm -hmm. what related? Egypt was a pure volunteer experience. Uh, again, I've always been fascinated by ancient civilizations, as you now know, mm -hmm. and the opportunity came to participate in an excavation slash restoration project in Luxor. Okay. And my husband and I signed up to participate. This was in 2012. Okay. If you ask me about significant events that have changed my life, that is one of them. I bet. That is definitely one of them to see things that are literally thousands of years old. Mm -hmm. And these carvings are so precise, so accurate. And it's still, well, uh, you know, aside from the fact that these things were buried under, under years and years of sand, but for the most part, it is still intact. I mean, it's, it's absolutely, I cannot describe just how amazing it actually is. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It truly is. So that was that. Mm -hmm. I worked in Canada doing my kind of my Lean Six Sigma type work. And that was for about nine months. I was traveling back and forth to Canada. And what year was this? 2015. Okay. Loved it. I would receive the royal treatment. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I would go, I mean, seriously, it was, it was insane. And if it weren't for the weather, I would probably relocate there. With, uh, where were you, in Montreal or? In the, it's a small town outside of Toronto. It's called oh, Kitchener. Okay. Eventually, things, things came to a head for me. I, I, was, I wasn't happy at Monsanto. I will say this. I learned very quickly the power of networking very quickly. Okay. And what was interesting here, here's another example of people seeing things in me that I don't see in myself. Mm -hmm. Every year, it was whenever there was time for the annual, your annual performance evaluation, you were typically asked what track you wanted to go on. Do you want to stay on the technical track mm. or the managerial track? They were always trying to push me, they being these different supervisors and bosses that I had because I have four different positions in three years. Wow. And I can explain that. They, every single one of them would always say, you know, I really think you should go on the managerial track because I was so good at communicating with people mm -hmm. at yeah. different levels. And they were like, you know, that's a skill set that not a lot of engineers don't possess that. Okay. But I could go in, into a room full of technicians, many of whom, have never been to college, some may have a GED, and talk to them just like I'm talking to you. Right. I could also have a conversation with the plant manager and the accountants and the environmental engineers. So I, I never saw that as a skill, though, mm. but they saw it. 
and they would keep trying to push me in that path and I would I would constantly reject it like no I want to stay technical I moved around four different into four different positions in three years because I was networking and I'd be like you know what I get bored very easily I have to have I like a challenge and I like for things to be new and fresh and that's how I learn and so when things start to kind of get when you're working in a plant it's very rare that you will be in a position where you are creating or designing something from scratch sure more than likely you are in maintenance mode you're in there to maintain equipment and in the event something goes wrong in the process of of manufacturing something as the process engineer chemical engineer you have to figure out what went wrong Every now and then you may have to replace a pump, replace a new vessel, but it's rare that you are in a situation where you can actually design and see it constructed. It is at this point that Alicia makes the shift to environmental engineering and enjoys the nine to five aspect of her life at that time much, much more. Yeah. But I was actually given that opportunity. That was my third position in the company. They actually built up a brand new unit from scratch. And I was there to see it happen from beginning, from the moment, you know, the engineers were in there trying to draw up all of this equipment and what it was going to look like to actually hiring the technicians and training them on how to use the equipment and monitor the equipment to them actually building everything. So that was really exciting. Okay. And so yeah. I started networking and I was like, well, maybe let me try my hand out at this environmental engineering thing. And I was tired of being in the plant and being able to work in a building where I could wear regular clothes was very exciting to me. So, so I started talking to the, the person, the woman who was over the environmental engineering group and when an opening became available, I moved right on into it. In this next section, Alicia shares her observations of factors impacting the pursuit of her MBA, along with revelations about the realities of working for a small business owner and how she was able to thrive with her entrepreneurial mindset and ways of being based on what that environment had to offer, all leading to her developing a transferable process methodology as a leave behind for business marketing. And lastly, the importance of listening to that inner voice when it says, it's time to move on. I had just started my MBA program at Tulane University that semester. Okay. Most of the classes that I was taking during that particular semester, your grade was heavily based on your attendance. Mm. Because of 9-11 and subsequent events that followed because of it, I was missing a lot of class. So I ended up dropping out and I said, okay, again, here, I'm going through this moment of self-reflection. I said, okay, Alicia, either the job goes or you forfeit your ability to use this MBA as your ticket to get out of the plant. What is it going to be? And I sat out again, the spring semester, still trying to figure things out. The job Mm -hmm. was still sending me all kinds of places. And I'll never forget, I received an email from the Tulane Entrepreneurs Association, T. They were hosting an entrepreneur by the name of Joseph Wink, the owner of Wink Engineering. Okay. And he was going to be a special guest and he was going to be speaking. Now check this out. It was on a Friday afternoon. I live in New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm in my early 20s. 
Yeah. You don't go and sit in a lecture on a Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> but something told me, you better go. You better be there. I listened to Mr. Wink give his lecture. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about the hardships that he encountered starting his engineering consulting firm. He failed the first time and he had to regroup. He had five small children when he started his consulting firm. He regrouped, even suffered a nervous breakdown and tried again. And this time it worked. Okay. And I was just so taken by this man. I had never even heard of his company. So I approached him after his presentation and I asked him, I said, Mr. Wink, I'm Alicia and I'm wondering, do you all hire chemical engineers? And he said, well, we sure do. He said, I'm going to give you my business card. I want you to email me and I'm going to make sure that my assistant gets in touch with you. So I'm thinking, oh, he's just being a nice old man, right? (laughs) I think it was maybe a month and a half to two months later, I was working there. I was their second black engineer, okay? And I credit Mr. Wink and my experiences working for his family-owned engineering consulting firm with really exposing me to small business. Okay. The knowledge that I gained there was you have to work. If you want it, you have to work for it. And I was not a typical employee. I was like an entrepreneur employee. Yes. Because they did something I haven't really seen since. They were very good about being transparent about the company's financials. Okay. And so every quarter you could see if things were trending up or trending down. And I was like, okay, well, how can I be proactive so that I can keep my job? Right. And so I would go to some of the higher ups in the company and I would ask them, can I write a proposal? I think there's an opportunity for us to do this at Shell, one of their major clients. Sure. Go for it. Yeah. And I'd write a proposal and then I'm like, can I actually present it to <laughs> the person at Shell? Go for it. So I was taking things that I was learning at Tulane because by this point I was back in school, full steam ahead, and I was taking these business concepts that I was learning at Tulane and directly applying it to my engineering job. And they were just, they were so tickled. They're like, yeah, go for it. And so I was bringing in all of this work for myself. Right. It was awesome. But then <laughs> I got bored with that, Vaughn. And, and <laughs> I, well, here's, here's what happened. A, a, a combination of things happened. I got really good at this one particular project that I did. And they wanted me to do another one and then do another one. Mm-hmm. And then do another one. And I was like, okay, why don't I write down how I did what I was doing and we can start spreading the love to some of the right. other people. No, they want you. <sighs> Boring. Boring. <laughs> time to go, baby girl. And I've always known when it's time to walk away from something. That's another skill that I've developed over the years. But here was the thing. I was in my final semester and I was like, let me just get through and I'll start applying for a more business focused job while I'm still at Tulane. I have learned to literally listen to the inner voice, listen to my intuition, listen to my instinct. Now Alicia and I get into what it meant for her to transition from New Orleans to Atlanta and some revelations about working in a southern city with a large Fortune 500 company base. You went through a lot in that period, those Mm -hmm. Monsanto years. Yes. You moved to Atlanta. Yes. I knew very little about Atlanta. I had visited Atlanta, and I always had a great time. 
mm-hmm. whenever I came for a visit, but I didn't know the different areas. And when I first got here, you have to remember, I'm coming from New Orleans, Louisiana, right? where the biggest industry is tourism. The legal industry is really <laughs> large, but that's pretty much it. So Atlanta, for me, was like this land of milk and honey. All of these large corporations that seem to have a presence here, I could not wait. And I saw my MBA as a tool to facilitate me getting out of a traditional engineering role into something more on the business side, but where I could still rely very heavily on my technical background. All right. And for about a good 60 days, Vaughn, I was relentlessly searching for jobs, going to career fairs. Hmm. And it seemed, this was right around the time when this idea of applying for things online was really starting to take hold. (laughs) I felt like I was applying for things and it was just going into a black hole. And I read The Miseducation of the Negro. Hmm. And that's another defining moment in my life. Because what I got from the book was that we are all blessed with natural skills, talents, and abilities. But because this period of indoctrination that we go through, i.e. our school system, we are literally being taught how to be good employees. Yes. Instead of being taught how to capitalize, here's capitalism again, how to capitalize on those natural skills, talents, and abilities. Again, another recurring theme, this self-reflection, I started thinking, well, what am I naturally very good at? And I said, I'm really good at organizing. And I started doing some searching online, discovered that there was a National Association of Professional Organizers who knew, I didn't know. (laughs) And so I looked into them, joined the organization, went to an office depot, made up some business cards on my inkjet printer. And I was like, you know what? I have this company called Equilibria. And it offers professional organizing services. My company started April 2005. Mm-hmm. So two, roughly two months after I had been in the city, yeah. I started my business. And I just started networking like crazy. And I did a lot of bartering. I would just ask people, I, I would say, you know, I'll do this for you. All I ask in exchange is that you give me a recommendation that I can put on my website and that you refer me to people that you know. And that's how I got started. Hey, 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 it's time for a little break. But when we return, you'll hear how Alicia ended up on the radar of a district attorney speaking on a woman's place. Stay tuned. At this point, we are taking a little break and giving a shout out to our partners over at liquidstudios360.com for their significant upgrade to the MyReality smartphone platform. That is MyReality spelled M-I-R-I-A-L-I-T-I. Listeners interested in impacting justice, equity, including addressing online bullying and trolling, economics, public health, environmental impacts, improving communities and cities, and almost anything else that can be imagined, all from your pocket, in a closed, secure network of people only you invite in, can find out more about the platform by visiting the MyReality website at myreality.com. Again, that's M-I-R-I-A-L-I-T-I.com. Download the latest version of the platform to your smartphone, 
via links on the website or go directly to the App Store for iOS and Google Play for Android. The platform will be presented at the 2019 Upswell Summit in Chicago in November as a science and technology demonstration in the public square. If you're in Chicago attending the summit, be sure to check it out. Want to be considered for possible participation in the digital presentation in some form or fashion? Drop us an email at info at ili360.org. This is my reality. What's yours? And I ended up being on a local television program on the AIB channel, the Atlanta Interfaith Broadcasting Channel. And there's a show on there called A Woman's Place. I happened to meet a woman who was a producer on that show. And she said, you know, we were brainstorming ideas for the show and someone brought up the importance of being organized. And I thought of you. Would you like to be interviewed? And I was like, of course. The interview first aired in October 2005. It re-aired January 2006. Perfect, perfect timing because that's when most people are making their New Year's resolutions and organizing right. is a big part of many people's resolutions. Yes. And I received a phone call from the DeKalb County District Attorney herself. Wow. And I thought I was in trouble <laughs> because she introduced herself so quickly. She was like, hello, this is Gwendolyn Case Fleming. I'm calling from the DeKalb County District Attorney. So I didn't even know she herself was the DA. Right. That's how right. new I was to the city. <laughs> and so I, there, there was this long, awkward pause and she was like hello are you still there and I said yes and depends said, on yes. who you want <laughs> <laughs> right and she said you know I saw you on tv and I was wondering if you could come in and give me a consultation hmm. and I thought you mean businesses and this is how naive I was you mean businesses are disorganized too yeah and because up to that point I should back up a little bit with my professional organizing clients I did not attract people who were chronically disorganized. They were not by any means hoarders. I tended to attract people who were operating home-based businesses mm -hmm. who really just needed some systems put in place to help them keep their business paperwork and business life separate from the rest of the house. Okay. And their frustration came in the fact, in the sense that they would say, you know, I'd have people come over here and yes, they make everything look nice and neat and clean and pretty, but then a week later, it's a mess all over again. Right. And here's where my background and processes started to come into play. And I would say, you know what, that's because you don't have a process to make sure that you can keep it this way. Let me show you how we can do that. So that's how I started first tapping into my background as a chemical slash process engineer. Well, with Gwen, the DA, she hired me and she kept giving me work for about two years. Wow. And I really credit her. She was basically like a catalyst for me shifting the language of what I do. So it shifted from professional organizing to creating business infrastructure. And I've been rolling with that ever since, Vaughn. <laughs> it, it will be 14 years, April 2019. So I'm right at a little bit over 13 and a half years in now. And it's been a very, very, very interesting journey, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. You are listening to The New Note. This is a transfer of knowledge for entrepreneurs and others sharing wisdom to our listeners and where they share, 
their next new note. So that journey sounds like it's had ups and downs and downs. Oh, of course, of course. It wouldn't be life if it didn't have ups and downs. <laughs> Alicia and I got into some of her lessons learned and takeaways from her experiences of starting up her company and being an entrepreneur in general. Would have been some big takeaways as being a small slash micro business owner. Lessons learned. One is be careful who you take advice and counsel from hmm. as an entrepreneur. How so? There's no shortage of people who have an opinion. I learned very early on that if you have not started your own business, you can't tell me a thing about how to run mine. You don't know this life. As, as the kids would say now, you don't know this life. Yeah. You don't know that life. Right. Being an executive at a large company is very different from starting something from scratch. Hello. Very uh -huh. different. Right. An executive is not an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur is not necessarily going to be an executive. Right. That was a very important thing I've learned. Another thing is be careful about your ego when it comes to crafting your products and services. You think you know what your clients want, but they will always tell you what they want every time. And that's a big part of why I believe some companies fail. Yeah. Your, your clients are going to tell you what they like and what they don't like. Sure. They will always tell you, listen to them. Our egos get in the way. Well, no, I know they say that, but, but I still think that, okay, these people are telling you what they want. It's what they're paying for. Give it to them or else you will be out of business. Right. What's another one? Trusting your instinct. One of the last times you and I talked, you were asking me about my book writing journey. Mm -hmm. And what was the biggest lesson learned? And I said, to trust my instinct. Yeah. There were so many people telling me, oh, there's no way people are going to read this. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. Why do you want this? Why do you want that? Don't do it this way. Don't do it that way. But I could not shake certain things. And I had to stand firm. And I'm glad I did. Yes. <laughs> Knowing when to let go. And let go generally. Let go of a... What are, you, what are we letting go of? It can be applied in so many different areas when we talk about business, but I'll, I'll just narrow it down right now f to this. A lot of times, here's, here comes self-reflection again, <laughs> sorry about it, but, it, but yeah. it is, it's so true. You have to, we talk about this thing called the SWOT analysis, right? Where you right. look at your strengths, your weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, because of ego, we think because we built it, that we have to be with it until the end. Right. And that's not true. You may not possess the skills to take it to the next level. And if you really care about your business and the clients and customers with whom you serve, you would let it go and put it into the loving, trusting, caring hands of someone who does have that skill set. Not everyone does that. And they try to hold on to their own detriment. And that's a big thing that I see. The, one of the common themes that I'm hearing across everybody, and this, this point was made to me by a guy who sells businesses, helps companies sell themselves because you know, they want to get out. Da, da, da. Bond, there's a difference between business owners and um, entrepreneurs. Okay? Absolutely. Yes. He said, business he said i was at 
the closing, had this guy, wanted to sell his company, larger corporation, wanted to come in, buy him up, buy him out. He was right, you know, said he wanted to do it, had the contracts all prepared, came into the closing. He would not sign the papers. He fell in love with his business, mm -hmm. his small business, couldn't let it yep. go. Yep. And that's what I was, that's exactly what I was getting at earlier when I said knowing when to let go. Yes. Entrepreneurs, we build things and we move on. Mm -hmm. The joy and the passion is in the creation and in the building of it. Agreed. And somebody reminded me as using my own profession as an example, they're like, Vaughn, you, you design a building for a client. You don't want to then become the building manager. Exactly. <laughs> right. You want to get facilities maintenance. Yeah, mm -hmm. I know I'm done with this. I need to move on to the next client who wants to build or you know design wants me to design the next thing. Yes, the entrepreneur is not into the you know build it, create it. Wow, that was great. Sell it off, give it away, give it to the client, do the next one. That's where the joy comes. I can tell you right now. I know I can't run a multinational corporation. I know that. I don't want to. I've been around enough executives to know I don't want that lifestyle. I don't want to be in meetings all day and then not being able to get my actual work done until seven or eight o'clock at night. And then I'm waking up at three and four and doing it all over again. I don't want that life. I'm not cut out for it. And again, you're really in maintenance mode as an executive. Right. You really are. It's very rare that you will be building something com unless you are in tech, right? That That's where the exception is. But for the most part, you are in maintenance mode. Someone else has already built this. And now you just have to maintain it and make sure you can keep the company afloat financially. And that's just, I know that that's not something I'm cut out for. But I can be honest with myself about that. Some people aren't willing to do that. They're like, nope, I started it and I can take it to the next level. Really? <laughs> <laughs> because it's different. Because now you have to play the quote unquote corporate game. Sure. And it's very different from being the mom and pop. Everybody's working hard. You're rolling up your sleeves. You're doing whatever it takes to get things done. That's not going to be your life in a corporate environment. Exactly. Your own board can get rid of you. Yep. Who cares that you founded it? I don't care. <laughs> You're not performing. Therefore, you have to go. Right. So those are some nuggets that I would, would just share with your audience from having been in business, mm -hmm. 13, not a side hustle, but truly having a business <laughs> for 13 and a half years. <laughs> Alicia and I delved into the genesis and execution of her book entitled Behind the Facade, How to Structure Company Operations for Sustainable Success, which is available on Amazon. And as you listen to this, you may think, sometimes you never know what the Wizard of Oz will provide. Let's jump to your book, Genesis and Execution, and where you are now. The Genesis. I was first encouraged to write a book in 2011, 2012 timeframe. I was talking okay. to a, a good buddy of mine, Robert Brown, and he was telling me about this company called Smashwords and how I could write an ebook 
and publish it through smashwords.com. And at this point, remember the journalism, any journalistic <laughs> ambitions I had was completely gone. That had been completely suppressed. So this was loosely talking about a methodology that I created, which culminates in process documentation and process mapping. So that's really what this ebook was about. Okay. And crickets nothing happened. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to market anything. And I just said, well, you know, okay, whatever. I did that. And if anybody ever asks about it, it's there. Fast forward, there's a man whose newsletter I had been subscribing to for about 11 years. He's a digital marketing coach. And something just told me, pick up the phone and call this man. And he was running a special where you could sign up for a $97 phone consultation. I was like, you know what? What the heck? I'm going to do it. And I was at a point where I really wanted to stop. I was starting to get bored Mm -hmm. and I wanted to move on to something else. But there was still a part of me, something inside of me that was like, again, that that engineering feeling of don't let it go. Like, Mm. I was like, this isn't working. I've been pounding the pavement. I should be further ahead than where I'm at. I, I was getting frustrated. But then there was that other part of me that was saying, try something one more time. Just give it a try. And I called him. We ended up talking for about four hours. Okay, four hours. I have to jump back here and remind listeners that Alicia and I talked for over five and a half hours. And we could have kept going, but that would have run us past midnight. Yeah, that's the life of entrepreneurs, interviewing starting at 6 p.m. So one thing you might pick up here is that she is really relatable, easy to talk with, and to swap life and business stories with. Based on the length of this final podcast, you can see that we left a lot of conversation on the digital cutting room floor, but most of which was my stuff in order for the listeners to get the most of Alicia's entrepreneurial backstory. Now, patrons of ILI at certain levels can get audio files of my stuff related to my conversation with Alicia and other guests on the show as requested. Some of it is pretty live. And I do believe some things should be taken to the grave. But that's for a special New Note brown bag episode. Back to the interview. And that conversation concluded with him saying, you need to write a book. And I was like, no, I already did that. (laughs) They've done that. He was like, no, 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 no. I mean a book. And I said, well, I can't write a book. I'm not a writer. I'm not an author. What? I, I just could not see how that was going to happen. And what started happening... This is, again, going to sound really crazy, right? But these characters started coming to me. And I, I always keep a notepad on my nightstand because, as my husband could tell you, I'm known for waking up in the middle of the night with ideas. Yeah. And I have to quickly jot them down. Sure. But these characters and the messaging that needed to get across just started coming. And I had to get it on paper. And then the challenge became, how do I frame this and organize this into an actual book. Just trying to figure that out. I don't want this to be a boring, dull, how-to business book. How can I present this? Bits and pieces of information about the book just kept coming to me, but the way to organize it still wasn't very apparent. And then once I finally figured that out, I wrote a one-page outline and I started typing like crazy. I would go to a Starbucks and I wrote that entire manuscript in seven weeks. It ended up being 420 pages. 
people are like, that is unheard of. <laughs> and everything else was put on hold. It wasn't fun financially, sure. but looking back, I don't think it could have worked any other way because you lose a certain when you're in that zone, like you hear athletes and musicians yep. and artists talk about being in the zone. It's true. You you don't want to disrupt that. So it's better if you just take it, just go ahead and get it all out. Yep. And that's what I did. So the manuscript was actually finished in April. The book <laughs> did not actually premiere until October. So writing it was not difficult. It's what came after writing it, where it was like, oh my gosh, this is such, self-publishing is no joke. Yeah. There are so many little details. If you want to do this correctly, if you want to do it properly, yep. it's a lot. And it's funny, you ask about implementation. I created a Gantt chart where I basically wrote out all of the major activities that had to take place mm -hmm. and had it not been for another friend of mine who's also a mentor dilsa bailey dilsa and i are in toastmasters together and she's also an author i would call her up and be like dilsa can we go for a walk in the park i need to pick your brain again so what is it that i'm supposed to do after it's been edited what's the next <laughs> step again and so she would tell me all of these different milestones and i said okay so this is the process engineer coming out of me i'm like okay help me put this in order. What has to come first? What is the order and the sequence of things I have to do? And I really believe had I not done that, this book would have taken much longer to get out. Yes. Having that engineering mindset and having those step-by-step -step sequential, logical, methodical thinking enabled me to really stay on top of things and to make sure that I was meeting some personal deadlines that I had set for myself. It's not like anyone else was saying, no, you need to, I didn't have a publisher saying, you need to get this right. to me right. by October 31st. I didn't have any of that. All of that was self-driven. And I knew I wanted to have it ready before I went to Cuba. <laughs> I knew that much. <laughs> but if I ever have to go through this again, I definitely know how to make the process even tighter and even more streamlined now that I've been through it once. Like they say, once you've done something once, you're an expert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's if you actually pay attention to where things could have been done better. So you have to change it. Like what didn't work according to plan and why? And is there something that you can do to maybe change that result the next time around. Got you. This is your host, Vaughn Nkosi, and you've been listening to The New Note. If you like what you've heard, please follow us on iTunes, and please remember to rate the show. You can also find us on social media. Search for us under New Note or Next New Note, depending on your social media platform. When you see the jazzy saxophone watercolor logo, that's us. We're in the home stretch now as we reflect on the influences that have shaped Alicia's journey while identifying some key learnings from her walking along her entrepreneurial path and other players on the board and their influence. Some good and others not so good. But hey, life is a lesson. Live and learn. One thing I'm hearing 
and it just came to mind for me. I'm hearing from you is, as you've mentioned several times, self-reflection. And mm -hmm. I definitely appreciate people being self-aware. Have you taken away that you've learned lessons from to do, not to do, to help you out in business or along this journey of entrepreneurship? Yes, absolutely. I'll give a positive thing and a, <laughs> something that has more of a negative slant. One thing that I have come to appreciate in my years of, of observing people, kind of like how I told you when I was in my early 20s, I would observe the newscasters, the journalists on TV and, and how they wa walked and talked and dressed and the whole nine. Well, fast forward to being a full-time, full-blown entrepreneur, communication, your ability to articulate and express your ideas. Okay. I have seen people who kind of like your friend that you were telling me about, who's really bright, but he has that thick accent, yes. being cognizant of that. So I made an effort to join Toastmasters. Hmm. And Toastmasters kind of has a two-pronged approach. One is obviously to help you with your public speaking and overall communication skills, but the other is leadership because in Toastmasters, they teach you leaders are effective communicators okay. <laughs> in general. Sure. Leaders are people who can communicate effectively to get their points and ideas across. Let's just say, for example, these pitch competitions where someone may have a really great idea, but they can't properly express themselves up there in front of these VCs or whoever is, is up there to critique their pitch. And so they don't get funded. But then you could have the person who has that gift of gab. They can sweet talk you, they can <laughs> say things. And there's, I mean, oh man, they are just so smooth in their diction. And people are like, oh wow, he knows what he's talking about or she knows what she's talking about. And that's what moves people. And whether it's rational or not, communication is critical. Postmasters actually helped me in writing my book. Because once you have completed a certain number of speeches in Toastmasters, you then select a certain track that you want to go along. My track that I started heading down before I started writing the book was the storytelling track. A lot of people would tell me that I was really good at telling stories. Again, yeah. I didn't see this as a skill. I, it, it's just me talking. Yep. A friend, Greta Counts, she's a, a sales coach. She was like, you're really good at telling a story. So I thought, okay, well, let me go down this path in Toastmasters. And the first speech that I was going to do was going to be called the Wizard of Odds, O-D-D-S, mm -hmm. instead of O-Z. And I was going to talk about some of these little known facts about the making of The Wizard of Oz, the original movie. And the thought occurred to me, that's how you need to start your book. Talk about Emerald City. And, and I've heard you say Emerald, references to Emerald City. That's the first chapter of the book is called Emerald City. The Wizard of Oz, by the way, is one of my all-time favorite movies. And my intuition was telling me, get the book. Read the book. Stop watching the movie right. to be inspired by the actual Wizard of Oz. And I'm so glad that I did. Anytime a book is turned into a movie, there's some details that are lost in the movie version. Sure. And 
one of the things that I thought was so interesting was the fact that when they made it to Emerald City, they had to put on these glasses that were green tinted. So that's what caused everything to appear with a green tint. Uh-huh. You don't see that detail in the movie. Right. And so I was like, oh, now that I know that detail, I can really play on that, you know, and talk and relate that to how we operate our businesses. And going back to Toastmasters, it helped me figure out how to write the bulk of the book. The bulk of the book is told in stories. It's almost like you have several different mini novels inside of one book. And I'm telling you about these characters who are people just like you and me, entrepreneurs at various stages of their business, all very ambitious, motivated, and they have encountered different problems in their business. And they come across these consultants who introduce them to different parts of this methodology that I've created. But what's what's different about the way I wrote the book is it's not telling it in a past tense. It's telling you like, hey, Vaughn, you're right here with her. You get to see what she's thinking, feeling, experiencing. This is how it is. Case studies, which is the way a lot of business books are written, yes. is based on what took place in the past. So you don't have an appreciation for, well, what led to this problem? What truly led to this problem? What was this person, the, the primary decision maker or business owner or, or entrepreneur, what was that person actually thinking? during the time that, that this crisis was taking place, you lose all of that detail when you're reading a case study. So I credit Toastmasters. My experiences in being in Toastmasters and coming up with all these different speeches over the years with helping me figure out how to best organize and deliver these stories, the stories that ended up making up the book. Here is the place in our conversation of the unfortunate yet unavoidable inevitability when having a conversation with professionals of color. The challenge of individual and institutional structural racism that inevitably creeps into reality. Alicia and I also had a conversation about the related impacts of ageism and sexism. All three isms are disappointing, but not unexpected. The more, the more negative thing, um, I recognize people don't always see you the way you may see yourself okay. physically, physically, okay? And something that I have personally struggled with, mm-hmm. one of many things in terms of physical appearance is people think I'm younger than I actually am. And so they may treat me a certain way, or I may be denied the work because of my physical appearance. One woman years ago told me that she saw me on that interview, that that television interview, and she said, you know, I, I hear you talk, you know, you were talking about your background and your work experience, but I can't help but think that you're, it's like you're trying to play grown up, like you're dressing. And it, that was so offensive to me. Wow. And um, I thought to myself, I know she doesn't, I, I'm telling myself, Surely she doesn't mean this the way that it came out. There's the the way you physically look, right? So so building on the physical appearance, being a woman, being a black woman. I was referred to someone once, and I won't say the name, the type of company he has, 
I went to his place of business, beautiful, very nice, and he gave me a tour. He was very nice to me. This was a white man, and we eventually went into his conference room, and I went through my presentation. I was showing mm -hmm. him a portfolio of my work, and I was explaining my methodology to him. And when I finished my presentation, he looked at me and he said, do you license this? Now, I thought he was asking. Have I taken what I've created and licensed it, grant licensing to other people? In other words, I'm a licensor. Right. And I quickly realized that's not what he meant. He said, who, who created this? And I said, I did. And he looked at me and he said, you created this? And I said, yes. Oh, all of a sudden he was no longer interested in yeah, my services. Wow. Yeah, you have to to see my face. I'm it's all scrunched up, all kinds of stuff. Oh, yes. Stuff you're telling me. Oh yes. And people think we're in this post-racial society and that these are anomalies, but this happens. And I have to tell my colleagues who don't look like me, I have to share these personal stories with them to let them know the struggle is real. And it's even harder for some of us than it is for others, simply because of what we look like, okay? Right. So all the education in the world, all of the work experience in the world, if you don't look a certain way, they're not going, it can't, they, they automatically discredit your work, your body of work. Well, it can't be good because it came from you. And it's sad, but it's very real. I recently cut 11 inches off of my hair. Now it was, oh, my hair must be holding me back. But you know what? Now I can honestly say, and it's like it, it's, it just happened this year alone, where I'm like, I really don't care. I don't care what you think about me. I really don't. I know who I am. I know my self-worth. I know that I carry myself well. I dress well, well-groomed whenever I am out conducting business. So if you are going to allow something as superficial as my outward appearance to prevent us from being able to do business together, I don't need to do business with you anyway. <laughs> this almost comes full circle back to this outward appearance thing and the mm -hmm. kids behind the, the violinist behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So much of our culturalization is wrapped up into these biases, prejudices, preconceptions. It has us put up mental blocks mm -hmm. where we can't see past things. And I guess being a person of color, I've asked in these sessions about gender, being a barrier. I'm not sure you cutting your 11 inches off your hair, how your hair being shorter would... Um... I thought it would make me look a little older. Huh. Yeah. I... <laughs> it's funny. I started my company at 28. And even before doing that, I would say to my father, I said, Pop, nobody takes me seriously. You know, do I need some gray hair? For people, you know, because people would look at me like this deer caught in headlights. Like, I hear the words you're saying, but I can't believe they're coming out of your mouth. I attributed it to age because I was dealing with a lot of people of color. So I wasn't thinking it was a race thing, but it was an age thing. And my father would be like the classic, don't rush to get old. Mm -hmm. Boy, it's a small window of having just enough gray to be taken seriously and too much gray to be saying you're past your prime and I've got nothing yes. to learn from you. 45 to 55 
that 10 year window where people still come to you for work and execution and production. It's starting to tip for me into advisor, mentor, and not, well, this guy can crank. He can still pump out and produce things. So, and again, it depends on who's on which side of the barbell if somebody's well under me, like the 20, 30-year-olds. They, they can't even factor them into, you know, I'm, I'm way past past the six it, so i'm losing people on the upper end they're like my father who are retiring yeah. so they are no longer business clients they're no longer in that space late 50s late 60s it's 10 years right it's that 10 years behind and 10 years in front that are still viable it's interesting you say that because i've come to a very similar realization even though I'm in my 40s, yeah. what I'm noticing is that I will still, from time to time, I have recruit, recruiters contact me for different consulting and contracting positions. I'm also at a point where I realize maybe this is the phase of my life to start becoming the instructor, giving back, mentoring more, but doing the daily grind of the project-based work in and of itself, I think I have outgrown that phase. And now it's all about the book. Well, let me capture my secret sauce, if you will, into this book so that you can now read it. And instead of me working with one person one-on-one -on -one or one company, I can potentially reach several thousands of companies through the book. Yes. Let me train you on my methodology so that you can now go and build a business and add that as part of your toolkit. Yeah. Let me teach you about Lean Six Sigma so now you can go back into the corporation that you work in and you can implement these projects on your own. I'm there with you. And I didn't look at it quite the way that you articulated it, but it makes a lot of sense. And it, I think it's applicable to me as well. It's a weird place because there's the ageism, there's the, the racism. Given the universe that I run in, especially dealing with philanthropy, which is predominantly women, I could argue there's some sexism mm. in there as well. So it's mm -hmm. like the, the triple hit. So anyway... That's why I wanted to ask you about the what you saw from the outside and the impact of it on your entrepreneurial journey. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't all about you, what you're doing right no, or what you're doing no, wrong. No. Yeah. Yeah. Not at all. But you have to keep going. And, and it is very discouraging. It's incredibly discouraging. Yeah. And... Being an entrepreneur can be very lonely. You have to surround yourself with other people who think like you. And to your point, what you just said, there aren't many. There really aren't many who think that way. Right. And it, it's tough. It's, it, you can feel very isolated. You have to make it a point to get out and about and meet people. You have to, there is no boss. There is no one else to hold you accountable but you. Yep. And if you don't have that, that drive, that tenacity, that stick-to-itiveness, mm -hmm. mm -mm, you'll be beaten down so easily. And that's why going back, I was sharing some of the stories about 
my time in college because it was brutal, the treatment, but it prepared me. It made me tough. Be a little bit crazy. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Think yeah. about it. You, you really do have to get out of your mind to be bold enough to think that you can build something and be the architect of your own career. Yeah. That is a very bold thing to do and not many can do it. Yeah, along that same previous thread about the isms faced by entrepreneurs of color, she and I had a conversation about haters. One in particular, she requested to be a reviewer of her manuscript, a woman who ended up pinching some of Alicia's work. But as I once told a colleague in DC, you can't hate a hater for hating. That's their job. So you, you gave me a positive, you gave me a negative. I'll say this and then I'm gonna ask the, the last question. Have you found any direct haters of what you're doing? Oh, oh of course. Okay. Of course. I, I'll give you a very recent example. Actually, I have two examples. One has to do with the book. So I was reaching out to some folks. Mm -hmm. One person that I reached out to, she started reading the manuscript and I, I'd asked that people have their reviews to me by a certain period so, because I knew the next step was to have it typeset and laid out for the final book formatting, so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. And this one particular person reached out and she said, I'm about halfway through. Mm -hmm. I noticed you haven't included anything about financials, about cash flow. And I said, well, maybe we can have lunch and have a conversation and talk about it. Because I wanted to know, I welcome anybody to challenge me, right? And pick things apart. I tell you, that's how I learn. I don't shy away from it. Sure. Well, we weren't able to actually get anything scheduled. She was traveling quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And the deadline was steadily approaching sure. that, that I needed from all of the reviewers. Yep. So I reached out to her again and I was like, hey, you know, I know you had some questions. Unfortunately, we weren't able to sit down and talk through it. Any chance I can get that review from you? And she was like, well, no, because I think there's a fundamental element missing from your methodology. So I started thinking about it and I said, wait a minute. So you're going to tell me that the 13 and a half years of experience that my methodology is based on is missing something. And I realized, I said, she has a bias. Yeah. Her bias, that's what she does. She teaches people about the financial side of business. Mm -hmm. And my whole point to her was, we have that out there already. Right. We have enough people talking about marketing. We have enough mm -hmm. people talking about how to sort and staff your company. Nobody's talking about operations for small businesses. Yeah. That's what this is about. Yes, you're right. All of these other things are important. And I'm not saying they aren't. What I'm saying is, let's talk about a topic that's usually reserved for either manufacturing companies mm -hmm. or very large enterprises, mm -hmm. period. So what's interesting, so she refused to give me a review. Okay. I don't know if she forgot that I was a subscriber to her newsletter or not. Started reading some of her newsletters and I started seeing topics that come directly out of my book. Ooh. And so the first time I said, oh, oh, how, how funny, how amusing, how entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. I see you. I see you. But by the third time I call her out on this. 
So I replied to one of those newsletters and I said, mm -hmm. it's interesting. It looks like we actually do have the same views on a lot of things. And she wrote back right away, yes, but I still disagree with you on this point. And I was like, uh-huh, okay. But I just wanted, I, I sent that to her to let her know I'm watching you. Right. I'm watching you. So here you are, you know, tearing me, you know, and you don't have this, that, and your, your methodology is flawed. Okay, well, if it's so flawed, why are you taking concepts from my book right. and including them in your newsletter? Right. Another really quick example, two different colleagues of mine that I adore, mm -hmm. both happen to refer me to this woman who says a software developer. This happened about a month and a half ago. Okay. And this woman kept kind of putting me off. And so eventually we found a date and time when we could talk. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, a conversation is only going to go downhill when someone <laughs> starts off by saying, I'm not sure why they thought we needed to talk, but so she started off the conversation wow. that way. And I said, well, I've known both of them for a fairly long time. Mm -hmm. They know me and what I do. And I said, based on what I've read about you on your website, this is probably why they felt we needed to talk. And I said, look, I'm in a very good position to be able to refer business to you because a large part of process improvement has to do with some type of software development or software integration. And she said, well, see, that's just it because I can't, I wouldn't be able to replicate because I do a lot of you do. And I said, okay, well, that's great. But I'm in, my, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, no, you aren't because I have this whole method, but okay, I'll, I'll go ahead and entertain you. So right. let's, let's continue this. So then she said, you know, I'm not in a position to refer business to you. And I said, well, do you believe in collaboration or competition? And she got silent. I said, because I believe there's enough out here for yeah, all absolutely. of us. Plenty and therefore I see, I see you as I see collaboration, not competition. Right. But because it's clear you don't want to have this conversation with me, I'm going to do us both a favor and wrap things up right now. No, I'm not standing for it. There was a, a contract I worked on at a very large company that will remain nameless. Mm -hmm. And I had done several things for them over the years. And this last project, the person who was over it, I told her that I was, I mean, I was burning the candle from both ends. I was mm -hmm. like, I... I can't keep working like this. It's, it's too much. Can you please hire someone else? And that was the plan all along. And she told me, you know, well, I just like the way you do things. And I don't think there's anybody else, you know, like trying to kind of gas me right. up a little bit. And I said, okay, well, if, if you're not going to hire anyone else, at least let me get more money out of this, right? Mm -hmm. So I asked for more money per hour. Right. And she approved two more dollars per hour. And I told her, I said, you know, you should have, it would have been better had you just denied my request altogether. But now you've insulted me. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to leave. <laughs> and you can figure it out once I leave what you're going to do next. And I, I remember her saying to me, I was in her office and she, she could never look at me face to, uh, eye to eye. Uh -huh. She kept staring at her computer monitor. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, 
the fact that you think you were going to get more money is absolutely ridiculous. And I looked at her and I said, why is it then that you come to me and ask me to, to create your presentations to the executives? Why is that? I must be good for something. Yeah. You, by your, by your own admission, have said you've never seen anybody do this the way that I do it. Now, if you have in the budget to have two consultants, why can't you just give me more money if you're not going to hire that other consultant? It's in the budget. Right, exactly. She didn't want me to have it. I could see where she was going. She was trying to head down a path of hurling further insults. And I was like, you know what? I don't have to do this. And so, and I, I walked out. And then she came to me and she said, I know you gave a one week notice. I want you to leave today. And I said, okay, because I knew she, I knew this woman well enough by then to know that she would do that. So I already had everything packed up. When you can exercise that kind of freedom and flexibility to say, I don't need this. Yeah. I can walk away and know that I'm going to be okay. They don't know how to handle it. When I did nothing wrong, that's what was so wild about it. I didn't, I had the audacity to ask for more money per yeah. hour. Right. And she freaking lost her mind. So much yeah. for women's empowerment. Yeah. This was another woman who did this to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, part of me would say I'm not surprised, but yeah, I'm, I'm not. So let me ask you the ultimate, ultimate question. What is your next new note? We always have something new, whether you are a next gen uh, or emeritus, there is something you've got cooking. So absolutely. What's, what's next? I have several ideas for other businesses, but mm -hmm. in my the business that we've been talking about in this interview, the new note, what I envision, I want the methodology to become a methodology that other business consultants can become certified in. And from there, the software that I currently have a prototype for will take off and it will basically become very similar in terms of a business model concept to Intuit. So Intuit has QuickBooks and you know how QuickBooks has almost become the standard for small business bookkeeping. Yep. I envision my software and my methodology is almost as becoming a standard for business infrastructure and operational excellence in small businesses. That is the ultimate goal is to sell form of software, certifications, classes, have all, empower other management consultants out there with this methodology so that they can build their own businesses. Or if they have their existing business, add this as yet another tool. I recognize my limitations. <laughs> I recognize that, to your point, I like to create. I don't want to be around dealing with customer support issues every day. That's not what I want to do. And I know that. Yes. And I recognize that there, there is someone out there, and I hope I find that person sooner rather than later, 
who can really take this and just have it blossom. On a final note of that new note, there's a documentary called Something Ventured. You can watch it. It's still on Netflix, I believe. Okay. The man who invented PowerPoint, they interview him. And he said something that was just so profound to me and it stuck with me. And it was something really simple. He said, you know, we never expected it to do as well as it did. And he said, we reached a certain point where I realized we were not structured for success. Hmm. I was not going to be the person who could take this where it, I knew it could go. So here's a person who said, hey, I have a product here. He got these executives fumble with all of these transparency slides. Right. Remember those? And he yep. was like, huh. So he created, that's what gave birth to PowerPoint. And had not been for him letting go of his ego and saying, you know what? This could really radically, fundamentally change the way people present information and ideas around the world. What if he had just sat on that and said, no, I like being it being me and Bob and Susie and Jane, and we're just going to keep it like this. Mm -hmm. Well, one of two would happen. Someone would steal the idea and take it to, right. <laughs> take it to higher heights. Right. Or you know, he would, the business would die in anonymity, yep. which is really sad because you have something that the world could literally benefit from and you're holding it back because you don't want to let it go. My point is he recognized he could only take it to a certain point. Sure. And then it needed to be turned over to someone who could really help it blossom into right. what it is today. Right. So I'm looking for my Bill Gates. <laughs> That's the new note. Well, thank you. This has been very thorough. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure we could squeeze out another hour at, uh, <laughs> of, of content. I'd be remiss if I didn't give you a chance to get a plug for your book title and everything. The title of my book is called Behind the Facade. The subtitle is how to structure company operations for sustainable success. The whole idea of the book is as small business owners, we tend to invest a lot of money into marketing and purpose as we should when we're first starting out. Well, what happens when as a result of those efforts that you've put into marketing and promotions, now you might have a little bit more demand from your customers than you're able to actually reach or supply. That's when your operations comes into play. That's when you need to make sure that you have the right people, processes, and tools so that things don't fall through the cracks and your customers won't leave angry. So this idea of putting up the facade is because of your great marketing erected this facade. And it's not a bad thing. All I'm asking is that you just make sure that your operations, the way you actually 
provide your product or service matches the beautiful image that you've projected out there to your customers. So it introduces the methodology that I created. It's not written in a boring how-to format. It's actually written in the form six different stories of entrepreneurs with these different businesses across different industries. And you're learning how they are working through a particular challenge in their business and how they meet up with a certain consultant and that consultant helps them reach a resolution. It's available on Amazon. It's actually available in any major online retailer, but I know so many people like to Amazon. So it's definitely on Amazon, also Books A Million, Barnes and Noble, and it's available in both digital and hardcover format. And it premiered on Amazon as the number one new release in the production and operations book category. So that was really exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Great. So we will be in touch soon. Okay. All right. Thank you again, Vaughn. Bye-bye. All righty. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, thank you for tuning in. You have been listening to my interview with my colleague, Alicia Butler-Pierre. I hope you got as much out of the conversation as I did. And I hope you have a chance to check out her book and catch you on our next New Note podcast. Be well. The New Note is a product of the Institute for Local Innovations based in New Orleans. Please visit the Institute on the web at ili360.org and consider becoming a patron. Your support will go towards the production of the podcast. As an ILI patron, you will have access to special content, including advance notice and access to future podcast episodes. Lastly, I'll leave you with this question. What is your new note? Thank you for joining us.